Well, I am uh, delighted that we have the privilege of having the ministry of, of day camp. It was a, a great week, and it was fantastic the way that the gospel went forth. I hope that you are excited about what you saw and heard, and uh, perhaps maybe uh, if you haven't been involved in day camp this year, uh, perhaps you'll be able to next year. We'd love to be able to have more. Uh, there was a concern about how many campers we were having in, uh, because of the logistics of buses and different things. So the more volunteers, the more children we can have. And uh, so think about it. It's a great way uh, to spread the gospel, a great way to have an influence and impact upon our community. And uh, it's a great way to spend uh, your uh, week. And I really do appreciate those that took vacation in order to uh, serve at day camp. Uh, but uh, well worth it, well worth it. And I say that sitting here with a coat on, they didn't give me a shirt because I didn't do anything. So uh, I get no credit, but uh, I really appreciate all those that were involved in all the effort that went in and there was a tremendous amount of planning and it was a real success. I've chosen this morning to skip forward in Romans to chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to go back. I'm not going to just skip all those verses, but uh, I didn't really think that they were the most appropriate for uh, the setting that we had uh, for day camp this morning. And uh, they also are pretty uh, hard and difficult and uh, took a little more time than what we we're going to be allotting uh, this morning. So we're, we're going to chapter 10. And another disclaimer, disclaimer uh, I did say that tonight I was going to deal with uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart but I decided to keep going with Revelation. Uh, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 17 tonight. Uh, I, I want to get through the, the book of, of Revelation. <clears throat> so Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Uh, here the theme is Paul has a genuine concern for his fellow Jews who are not saved. Key verses 10 verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them... And that, he's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about those that are his brothers according to the flesh. Is that they would be saved. So Paul's concern is for the salvation of his fellow Jewish brethren who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And now Paul's concern is manifested in two ways. First, Paul's concern is manifested in his emotional response to the thought of his fellow Jews being lost. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's longing, my heart's ambition, my heart's goal, okay? What he inwardly desires for the nation of Israel is that they would be saved, all right? That's, that's what he's about. That's what his interest and concern is. And then secondly, that concern is demonstrated in his activity. For notice, Paul's genuine concern for his fellow Jews' salvation is manifested in his prayers to God on their behalf. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is Israel, that is his kinsmen according to the flesh, is that they might be saved. Now, Paul had just concluded this lengthy diatribe on election. Now, we haven't completed it. We're going to go back and pick it up where we left off. 
but in chapter 10, Paul has concluded it. And he moves on, and it's an interesting segue, if you would, in chapter 10, for it is an emphasis on Paul's prayers to God for the salvation of his fellow Jews. Certainly, we learn from this verse that there is no inconsistency or incompatibility with the teaching of the doctrine of election and praying for the salvation of individuals. Uh, Probably the doctrine of election is, is one of the most abused and misunderstood doctrines in the Word of God. And it, one of the reasons it's so abused is because those that are opposed to it come up with some odd uh, logical conclusions, and unfortunately even some that believe the doctrine of election correctly also come up with some strange logical conclusions. And what we need to always guard ourselves is by asking us, as we did last week, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? There are a lot of people who think that the doctrine of election takes away human responsibility, that takes away our activity that is necessary in the salvation of those that are lost. But nothing could be farther from the truth. God uses means. God uses instrumentality. God has a way in which he saves individuals. And there are two things that are going to be stressed as we move forward in the book of Romans. One is the sharing of the gospel with those that are lost. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it asks the question, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him Um, of whom they have not heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are people going to know the gospel without someone sharing the gospel with them? It isn't just going to drop out of thin air, and people are not going to be saved without responding to the gospel. Then Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the way in which faith is produced, again, this doesn't just drop out of the sky. When we talk about faith being a gift, that does not mean that God believes for us. Let me say that again. When when we're talking about faith as a gift, that doesn't mean that God believes for us. Our faith is in that fact, our faith. But what God does is open our hearts and minds so that we understand, believe, receive the truth of God, and actually are brought to faith. It is our faith, but it is through the instrumentality and working of the Holy Spirit. And what he uses is his word. His word is what going to impart faith to us. We rejoice. We heard that there were seven who made a profession of faith this week. The reason, because they heard the gospel, because they heard the word of God, because they heard the truth of the salvific message, and as a result, came to faith, came to embrace, 
came to understand and acknowledge that I am in need of a Savior. So we see that, that teaching, preaching, sharing the Word of God is necessary if people are going to be saved. Second, in this passage, we find out that God uses the prayers of his people to save people. Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is they'd be saved. We are to pray for the salvation of the lost. We have been praying as a church on Wednesday nights. Last Sunday morning, we had the staff come forward and we prayed for the staff. We prayed for God's blessing upon his word. We prayed that God be pleased to bring people to himself. And we had seven professions of faith. That cannot be separated from the prayers that are offered. So as you think of the doctrine of election, don't let that create passivity in your heart and mind. Don't come to the conclusion, well then I have no responsibility, I have no duty in the salvation of those around about me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God has not only ordained the ends, he's ordained the means. And that is by sharing the gospel and praying for those that we know need the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I can't emphasize enough. Parents, pray for your children. And don't just assume that they're going to come to faith, but pray for them. Pray regularly. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your friends. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for those that, that you don't even know, but yet you know that are in need of salvation. For God uses the prayers of his saints to bring people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, we're going to look at now Paul's concern for his fellow Jews who do not know the Lord. And we are going to look at three things. First, Paul's compassion for his fellow Jews who are not saved. Paul's compassion. The Jews had a misguided zeal for God. Notice verse 2. For the reason... For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is the reason that they need to be saved. They have a misguided zeal. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul can relate and identify to that misguided... Paul can relate and identify with that misguided zeal on a very personal basis. For it says in verse 2, I bear them witness. Paul can testify personally to the misguided zeal that is often manifested when it comes to a relationship to God. Paul certainly had a misguided zeal. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3 where Paul is standing before an angry mob of Jews who are upset with what Paul has been teaching and preaching, he addresses them and says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a, a very uh, famous uh, Jewish teacher, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our heart, fathers, 
being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul says, I was zealous for God the way you are. I understand. I am like you. I shared in your passion. Paul understood what motivated their persecution of him. For he had once persecuted others. Philippians 3.6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was sold out in his Jewish beliefs. He was faithful in practicing them. He prayed regularly. He read and memorized the scriptures. He tried to be obedient to the law of God. He did everything that he was instructed to do as a Jewish young person. And he says, as concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He did everything he was told to do. He loved God in the way in which he knew to love him. And he was so committed to what he believed that he was going all over the place persecuting those who didn't believe like he did. He was zealous. But unfortunately, zeal is not what is the basis of salvation. And if there's ever a time in which we need to understand that it is in the day and age in which we live. Because many times people think that as long as other people are sincere, as long as they have some kind of faith, as long as they believe in something, as long as they believe that there's a God, that there's a God that exists, certainly Paul believed in a God. He believed in a God that existed. He believed in a personal God. He prayed to that God. And yet, he wasn't saved. There is this idea that everybody who has faith, no matter what their faith is in, they are okay. And they are going to be ultimately in the presence of God and be saved. But that's not what the scripture teaches. Even zealous people, good people, church-going people, Bible-reading people, people who are trying to live a good life, people who give to the church, people who are charitable, people who are kind, people who make sacrifices for the sake of others, people who are committed to their beliefs and practice them faithfully, regularly, devotedly, can still be lost. And that was part of Paul's anguish. That was part of Paul's compassion. How sad it is to think of people that would be so committed and yet be so lost. So we have Paul's compassion. Now we have Paul's correction. Paul's correction for the Jews who are being saved. So where do they go wrong? Why aren't they saved if they are trying to obey the scriptures, if they are offering prayers, if they are reading their Bible, if they're trying to do good, if they are being faithful, then why not? Okay, what more could God ask? What more could God want from them? Well, here it is. Verse three, here's the correction. Four, the reason for their lostness. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Now, there are three thoughts in this verse. First, they were wrong because they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, the word to be ignorant is not to be understood as uninformed. Okay, They weren't ignorant in the sense that they didn't know the truth. But rather, it's to be blind to. It's to not recognize. It's not to submit to. It's not to appreciate the truth. Rather, they had hardened their hearts against the word. They refused to hear. They were putting their fingers in their ears. They, they dismissed what Paul was having to say. So they were blinded to God's righteousness, it says in verse 3. Blinded to God's righteousness in two ways. First, they were blinded to God's standard of righteousness. Just how righteous did they have to be? The answer is perfect. Jesus said, uh, the scripture says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. They had to be completely righteous. Not just morally excellent. Not just superior to those round about them. God doesn't grave, grade on a curve. God doesn't say, as long as you're not a Hitler, as long as you're doing better than most, as long as you are being more dedicated, more faithful, as long as you are a better person than most of the people around about you. No, what God requires is perfection. Perfection. And nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And secondly, they were blind to God's provision of righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So they were blind to this righteousness which comes from Christ. So secondly, they went wrong by trying to make themselves righteous. Look at verse 3. For being blinded to the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Okay, So rather than to accept the righteousness that God gives through Jesus Christ, rather than, than uh, accepting that wonderful gift, they decided to trust in their own righteousness. They decided that they were going to make themselves righteous enough to be accepted by God. And it can't be done. It can't be done. You can't make yourself righteous enough to be accepted by God. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they stumbled, the scripture says, at that stumbling block. They wanted to rely in their own goodness, in their own righteousness. None of us is going to make it to heaven based on our own personal righteousness, goodness, holiness. Then thirdly, they went wrong by not availing themselves of the righteousness that comes by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not accept this message. They were not willing to humble themselves and admit that they needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the problem that many religious people have. And that is to have the humility to acknowledge that their own goodness isn't good enough. For a lot of people pride themselves in their honesty. They pride themselves in their commitment. They pride themselves in their reading of the scriptures. They pride themselves in the prayers they offer. They pride themselves in their heritage. They always went to church. Their parents took them to this, to this church. They pride themselves in their background. And they find it difficult to admit that they are a sinner in need of a savior, that their sins need to be dealt with. They don't want to admit or acknowledge their own personal sinfulness. And that was their problem. Accepting the fact that their righteousness wasn't good enough. Which brings us then to Paul's conclusion. We saw Paul's concern, then we saw Paul's correction. Here's the conclusion. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, that doesn't mean that, God, that, that the law passes out of existence. But what it means is that it, it is an end to using the law as a means to obtaining righteousness. For that was never the purpose of the law. The law was never given so that a person could obey it and be righteous. Let me say that again. The law was never given so that a person could obey it and be righteous. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law was not given as a means for people to be righteous. The law was given to reveal our unrighteousness. The law was given to show us that we are sinners. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right? As we read the word of God, we read what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, the sins of, of commission, that is doing things that we should not do, and the sins of omission, that is failing to do things that we should do. As we read the word of God, we should all be convicted. We should all read the word of God and say, you know, I fall short. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We should all come to the conclusion that we are sinners. And coming to that conclusion is the realization that we need Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we trust in him. And when we trust in him, we move from looking to the law to make us righteous to looking to Jesus Christ and him alone to make us righteous. So that is true for now and to eternity. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Are you now made righteous by, by the law, okay, now that you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no. Our righteousness is solely in Jesus Christ. We're not looking 
to the law to make us righteous. We're looking only to Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy, it says this. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's still a place for the law of God. As long as you use it lawfully, there's a play on words. As long as you use it correctly. As long as you use it in the right way. What is that right way? To reveal sin. To point out. When the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. It isn't so that now we quit lying and therefore we're going to become righteous. No, it's to show us, but we all have done that. We all have lied. There, there's not a one of us here that hasn't misrepresented the truth at some point or failed to fully disclose the truth in every given situation. It's to reveal the fact that we're sinners. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. I say it often because I don't say, think I can say it too much. If it were possible for salvation to be had apart from Christ, God would never have sent his son into this world to die on the cross. If it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die, then he wouldn't have died. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So Paul prays for his fellow Jews, that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not in themselves, not in their own goodness, not in their religiosity, not in their committedness, not in their zeal, but only in Christ. And we need to understand this morning that unless a person places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, no matter how zealous, no matter how good, no matter how faithful, no matter how religious, they're lost. They are lost. We need to start with that conviction. May God bring us to that realization that if a person doesn't come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are lost. And then having come to that conviction, we shouldn't be proud, we shouldn't be indifferent, we, we shouldn't be haughty, but we should look around at the many that we know who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be heartbroken. Not indifferent not apathetic, but feel for them, to feel compassion for them. And especially, if that's our testimony, if we have grown up being a Christian in the broadest sense of that word, having gone to church, having been catechized, having prayed, having gone to Sunday school, having gone to youth camp, having gone to so many things and engaged in religious opportunities and activities and prayed and went to vacation Bible schools and all kinds of things, but have never placed one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're lost. You're lost. We have to be convinced that there are people sitting in churches this morning that don't preach the gospel, that are lost, even though they've been going to that church faithfully for years. They're lost. 
Don't you see, if Paul was lost and had to come to faith on the road to Damascus, if a person like him is lost, then what hope is there? There is none in simply being religious or being zealous. It's faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. So once we have been convinced of that, then we need to share that message. As difficult and hard as that may be, as uncomfortable. Can you imagine what it was like for Paul to go to his, his fellow Jews and say, I know you're zealous, I know you're sincere, I know you're committed, I'm with you, but you're lost. You need Christ. We have to take that message to those that we know that are lost. And thirdly, we need to pray. Pray. Pray to an almighty God who can do what none of us can do. It's not how we present the gospel. It's not how flashy we make the gospel. It's not how many tears we shed as we share the gospel. We are totally unable to reach into the heart of an individual and change that heart and pour faith into them. We can't pour faith into anyone, but God can. And God uses his word and God uses prayer to bring that person to faith. And so this morning, let us recommit ourselves to the sharing of the gospel, for praying to God for the lost, and believing that this almighty God is going to bring people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that everyone who has not placed their faith in Christ needs. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we pray. And we pray even if there is anyone here this morning who has never personally placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They have heard many, many times, but for whatever reason have not yet submitted themselves to the righteousness which comes from God by faith. I pray that this morning would be that morning. If there is anyone here this morning that wants to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, never have done so before, but you'd like to today, would you quickly raise your hand? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to know and I want to pray for you. Not by name, but anyone. I'm not going to make this long or lengthy, but if you want to accept Christ this morning, please raise your hand so I can see it. And uh, I pray this morning that all of us would be convinced that it's only through Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. So, Lord, may we not keep that message to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to take it to others that we know that are in need, even those that are so zealous and so committed and so faithful to their particular understanding, but, Lord, misguided zeal still doesn't bring acceptance in your sight. So, Lord, uh, help us uh, to take the gospel and to be praying for uh, that gospel to be effectual in the lives of people. And again, today we just rejoice and thank you for the opportunity to share the gospel with so many this past week, for the children that you brought to us that didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. The gospel was shared you brought them to faith. They have declared their commitment to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and have come to know peace with God. We thank you for that.
Help us to be faithful to this gospel message for as long as we live. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.